All right, 1 Peter 3, 8 to 22, God's word says this. Finally, all of you have unity of mind, sympathy, brotherly love, a tender heart, and a humble mind. Do not repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, bless. For to this you were called that you may obtain a blessing. For whoever desires to love life and see good days, let him keep his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking deceit. Let him turn away from evil and do good. Let him seek peace and pursue it. For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous and his ears are open to their prayer. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. Now who is there to harm you if you are zealous for what is good? But even if you should suffer for righteousness sake, you will be blessed. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled. But in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. Yet do it with gentleness and respect, having a good conscience, so that when you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. For it is better to suffer for doing good, if that should be God's will, than for doing evil. Verse 18, for Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit, in which he went and proclaimed the spirits in prison, because they formerly did not obey when God's patience waited in the days of Noah, while the ark was being prepared, in which a few, that is, eight persons, were brought safely through water. Baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you, not as a removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God with angels, authorities, and powers having been subjected to him. This is the word of the Lord. Quoting one of my heroes of the faith, Dietrich Bonhoeffer, he was a man that suffered for the cause of Christ uh, under the, the Nazi uh, regime. He stood against Hitler and sought to save Jews and was involved in a plot to actually take down Hitler, uh, to kill Hitler. Ultimately, Bonhoeffer was captured and imprisoned, and he gives us this quote. He says, Those who are afraid of men have no fear of God, and those who fear God, have no fear of men. I feel it's a good way to start this morning as we look to our main idea. Our main idea is this. We, we expect opposition to our faith, but, hear this, we have nothing to fear. We have nothing to fear. The title of our sermon this morning is, Whom Then Shall We Fear? Whom then shall we fear? The tipping point of our passage today comes in verse 14 where Peter declares this. He says, but even if you should suffer for righteousness sake, hear this, you will be blessed. And then he says this, have no fear of them, nor be troubled. Let us listen to men of experience. Okay, Bonhoeffer, imprisoned for his stand against Hitler and the murder of Jews, again said, fear God have no more fear of men. Peter, arrested for preaching the gospel countless times, and eventually Peter was martyred upside down on a cross for his faith and belief in Jesus, proclaims these words, have no fear of them, nor be troubled. 
Looking back to the Old Testament, David, a man who who fled for his life, fleeing the evil schemes of of King Saul, declares these words in Psalm 27.1. He said, the Lord is my light and my salvation. And then he asked this question, whom shall I fear? The Lord is the stronghold of my life. Of whom shall I be afraid? To which a resounding answer, no one but God. So this brings us to ask this question of this particular passage. Why should we not fear? Why should we not fear? We're going to draw out four truths from this passage. I'm letting you know ahead of time, we're leaving some stuff on the table in this one. There's probably about four or five sermons in this passage. There's a very controversial section. We'll see where we get. Uh, This is going to be kind of a fluid and and dynamic sermon this morning. There's just a lot here, and the chili smells kind of wafting through in here, and I'm getting hungry. So, So we're presented with the question, why should we not fear? And so we're going to look at at the first point of this. The the first reason we should not fear is because we have a church family to love, support, and guide us. It's our first point. We have a gospel-centered family. We have a gospel-centered family. Peter focuses these Christians on the importance of their church family from the get-go here in this this passage, uh, verses 8 and 9, in particular uh, verse 8. And this is what I mean by gospel-centered family. Remember, he, he had just instructed wives of husbands who were unbelievers last week. We learned about that. Their family then was, in a sense, the church. It was the family of God. That was the foundation of their faith, was, was grounded in this family that loved and supported them. That's why Peter instructed them. We call each other this in, in church. We call each other brothers and sisters. Because we have been, this is the reason why, we've been reconciled to God the Father, and we've been adopted into his family. And so Peter begins his instruction with the family of God as the foundation for pushing against fear in the midst of suffering and uncertainty. Again, the the overarching context of 1 Peter is that he is encouraging Christians who are suffering persecution in the Roman Empire. And so he gives this instruction in verses 8 and 9. Finally, he says, all of you, okay, that's everybody. He says, all of you have these things. Pay attention. There's five things that he tells us. Have unity of mind, sympathy, brotherly love, a tender heart, a humble mind. Do not repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, bless For to this you were called, that you may obtain a blessing. Peter instructs us here to have five things within our interactions with each other, within the church family, within the family of God. The church should represent these things. Number one, I love that he leads with this, unity. There's so many churches that are marked by division. There's churches probably in, in our community that were once one church and have divided in their two churches and not a good divide where it's a sending out a church planning. That's a good divide. We should divide and send uh, little pods of Christians out to start new churches. We need more churches in Bullitt County. But there's a, a bad divide which is caused over disagreement and division where two 
uh, or where one group of Christians then splits apart and they start two separate churches that are at, at odds with each other. And Peter starts out with this. He says, you shouldn't have any fear because we should be unified as the body of Christ. There should be a unity of mind within God's people. Okay, we should, church, contend with each other for this cause to be unified, to be one. Okay, that, and when I say unified, that doesn't mean we're going to agree on everything. But when we walk out these doors, doors, we are joined together hand in hand as one. I can remember, you know, growing up, I had, I had two older brothers, and, and they were a lot older than me and bigger than me, and so they'd beat the snot out of me. But I tell you what, when we walked outside, if someone messed with me, you want to know who had my back? My brother. And so sometimes there can be a little bit of, of tension within the walls, and, and we want to strive for, for unity. But, man, when we're outside, we're hand in hand. We're side by side. We have each other's backs. We should be together. The church must be unified. I didn't Notice I didn't say should be unified. Must be unified. Especially if we are going to stand together in trying times such as these. We need to have a united body of Christ. And it begins in the local church at North Bullet Christian Church that we would be unified together. Number two, we should have sympathy. Okay, what, is, what does sympathy mean? Sympathy means that I, I feel what you feel. I've seen this play out in the life of our church. When, when our members grieve, there's members with them grieving alongside them. Even though, you know, maybe they, someone has suffered a death. You don't even know who that person is, but we're weeping together. Okay, we're, we're sympathetic Paul says these words. He says, rejoice with those who rejoice. Weep with those who weep. That's what sympathy is. It's both of those things. When things are going, when someone gets a promotion at work, we're celebrating that. When someone's suffering because a loved one has died, we're weeping with them. We're grieving with them. That's what the church does. We're, we feel that. Why? Because we're family. We're family. Number three, I'm going to put number three and four together. He says, brotherly love and a tender heart. Brotherly love and a tender heart. Again, going back to, to the family, right? When we walked outside, there was a deep love that we held for each other, even though we might have just been scrapping inside the doors. There's this deep affection that we have for the body of Christ, for the church family. Again, true, true blood family relationships, they, they run deep. Even when distance separates, a lot of times you can lean into your family to, to help you out. We can count on each other. The same should be true of the church, that we find that sort of, of tenderheartedness and brotherly love, this, this deep familial connection with each other. I would say even more so. Peter is getting at the depth of love that they have for each other. And lastly, that we would have a humble mind. Peter says a humble mind. Okay? Simply put, be humble. Okay, be humble. We don't, family, we don't have to act like we have it all figured out. 
Okay, oftentimes in church life, unfortunately, when our lives become a mess and we're facing suffering or we have things that are falling apart or, or maybe there's sin that has gripped us that we just keep falling into over and over again, the natural tendency that we do in church life is that we withdraw and we hide and we close the doors of our home and we say, there's nothing to see here, just stay away for a little bit. When in reality, if we would humble ourselves and seek the Lord, this would be the first place that we would come to. Family, I want you to hear that. If you're going through a struggle, if you're facing sin, if your life is falling apart, don't face that alone. Be humble enough to come seek the Lord and be around your family that we can partner with you and we can, in a sense, be your crutches. We can lift you up arm in arm over our shoulders. When you watch a football game, when there's a football player that goes down, the teammates come out, what do they do? They lift him up, they put their arm over their their shoulders and they take him off the field and they tend to him and they help them and they help him heal and get him back up on his feet again. It's the same thing in in the family of God that we would be humble enough that we could come and, and meet one another's needs. That we could also be humble enough that we would realize this truth. You see, this is the beauty of the gospel is that it humbles us. It, it does both things. It lifts us up because it shows God's love for us, that he loved us enough to die for us and to reconcile us to himself. But also it does this. It humbles us because it says this. It says, in your own good works, you're not good enough. And you need the works of another. And so there's nobody that walks through these doors that could be proud or egotistical or think they're so great because at the center point of our faith is that we come before a loving Savior and we say, God, I'm not good enough. I need your work. And so humility should just infiltrate every aspect of our church. We don't have to act like we have it all figured out, like everything's okay when it isn't. Humility was also a a mark of our Savior. It says that he was meek, he was gentle, he was lowly of heart. And so when fear grips and creeps into our lives, remember the family that you have, your church family. The one that is unified with you, is sympathetic towards your hurt, loves you as a brother or sister, and is gentle and humble towards you. Number two, why should we not fear? Why should we not fear? Uh, because we got stuff to do. Okay, our second point, gospel-centered action. Okay, we don't have time to fear. We have things to do, church. We don't have time for that. We need to be people that are about action. This is, this is our outward, the outworking of our faith. We don't have time for fear to invade our lives because we're centered on the mission of God. Here, Peter quotes a psalm of David. It's in Psalm 34. He says this in 1 Peter 3, 10 to 13. He says, I, I want to stop here for a second. Do you see how much Peter loves the word of God? Every single passage is just filled with God's word from the Old Testament. And he's encouraging Christians through God's word. And he says this, whoever desires to love life and see good days, let him keep his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking deceit. Let him turn away from evil, hear this, and do good. Let him seek peace and pursue it. 
For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous, and his ears are open to their prayer. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. Now, who is there to harm you if you are zealous for what is what? Good. For what is good. There's a key word in in this section. Peter quoting scripture again, he says this, do good, right? Do good. Can we do good if we're just sitting on our backside all the time and twiddling our thumbs? No, do good is an, is an action statement. Do something. And then ends with this section saying, now who is there to harm you if you are zealous for what is good? If you are zealous for what is good. Why should we not fear, again, circling around to that question, because we don't have time for it. Hey, it's urgent. We're in urgent times. We need to be about the Lord's business. Fear has no place in the life of a believer when we are going about the business of our Heavenly Father because we don't even have time to think about it. Which is to do good and to be zealous for that which is good. And so because of that, we do not respond as the world responds or the world system responds. That which is opposed to Christ. I fear this. I fear that there, there's a karma-like thought that has invaded the minds of believers. What do I mean by that? What do I mean by karma? You hear phrases like this. Goes around, comes around. Or, they had it coming to them. Okay, that's karma. We don't believe in that. Thankfully, we don't believe in that. And thankfully, God's proven that he doesn't work in that fashion because if I got what I deserved I'd be on the cross where Christ was we don't operate with this type of mindset and yet it, it, it infects so many different areas of our Christian life and grips our hearts with fear have you ever found yourself like you you just ran out of, this isn't a habit I'm encouraging you to get into, but you know, in the morning, the, the morning got away from you and you got to get the kids to school and then you got to get to work. And, and so the quiet time was shortened or you didn't get any of it. You didn't read your Bible. And then later on in the day, the, you know, Mr. Policeman pulls you over for a speeding ticket. And the first thing that comes to your mind is like, I didn't read my Bible today. That's why that happened. God doesn't operate that way. Thank goodness he doesn't give us what we deserve. Okay, later on we're going to see what we get. We get the righteousness of Jesus. It says that he took on what the unrighteous should have had, should have received. So we don't have time to fear because we need to be about the Lord's business. And we have to remember that we don't operate in that mindset again of that person had it coming to them or what goes around comes around. Because we were just instructed by Peter in this verse right before this. He said, do not repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling. And we have to remember a few weeks ago, we read a passage as it says that, that it was God. It is God who judges what? Justly. God will handle it. He will handle it. Instead, Peter focuses on action. He says, do 
good. He focuses on, on our mouths and, and the words that we say, the action of our lips that we, we keep away. He says, keep away from evil and deceit. Deceit is what? Lies. Misleading. He says that we seek peace, but he doesn't say just wait around for peace. He says what? Pursue it. Run after it. Run after peace. What if, what if in our earthly relationships we sought peace in, in relationships that were destroyed? And instead of waiting, say, I'm just waiting for her to come and apologize to me, and then I'll forgive her. But if we pursued peace, what would that look like? That person that's hurt you, if you pursued peace in that relationship, what would that look like? Seeking that person out, owning what you've done, reconciling that relationship. That's the type of people we're to be. A great recent example I believe that we have is uh, early in, in the pandemic March 2020, April 2020, if you'll recall, uh, initially, one of the hardest hit areas in the country with COVID was uh, New York City. You guys remember early on, New York City, would ju- I mean, their hospitals were overflowing, people were dying. It was really a kind of a dire scene in the city itself. And uh, Franklin Graham, who leads a ministry called uh, Samaritan's Purse, it's a, it's a medical ministry. They do some other things also. Um, one of the medical ministries that they do is they, they, they went in to New York City and they, they set up medical tents to help patients. And do, do you want to know what the city's response was to them? They wanted them to leave because of the moral standards that they held as Christians. And yet, Franklin Graham didn't, didn't revile as he was reviled. He didn't return evil for evil. They stayed there, they ministered to people, they met their medical needs, and then once the tents emptied out in late May 2020, they cleaned them up and they went somewhere else and met needs. That's an example of a Christian doing good in the face of a world system that reviles them and pushes back against them because they hold to the instruction of God's word. Number three, why should we not fear? Number three, because we have a reason for hope and we should focus on defending our reason for hope. It's gospel-centered preparedness. Gospel-centered preparedness. So we looked at the outward, our action. Now we look at, at the inward, what's going on inside of us. I love this next section, in, in particular verse, verse 15. 14 to 17 says, but, but even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you will be blessed. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled. Hear this, but in your hearts honor Christ the Lord as holy. Then Peter gives this, this instruction, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. Yet do it with gentleness and respect. Because no room for arrogance in this. Gentleness and respect, having a good conscience so that when you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. For it is better to suffer for doing good, if that should be God's will, than for doing evil. The section kind of sounds familiar in parts because it reflects an earlier section that we preached a few weeks ago. So we're not going to get into all the details here, but we're going to focus on uh, verse 15. 
Uh, Peter has a tendency in his letter to get, to get repetitive, to drive a point home. He's driving a point home. He, he's exhorting the church to remember what you are here for, to do good, right? To act in a good way, to live out the transformation that has already occurred within your soul. Okay, we have no fear because we honor the Lord Jesus as holy, he says. If the, if the Spirit of Christ, I want you to get this picture. If the Spirit of Christ has filled us, how is there any room for fear? How is there any room for fear to invade you if you are filled with the Spirit of Christ? In fact, Peter goes on to say that we should expect those in unbelief and those who, who persecute us to ask why we have such hope. This is my prayer for the 17 people uh, sent out by Christian aid in Haiti, that their kidnappers would look at them and they would think through this because they're, they're demanding, I believe, a million dollars per person. So $17 million dollars. Okay, the truth of the matter is, is that we know that the United States government, by and large, does not negotiate with hostage situations like this. Okay, so in a sense, there is no earthly hope for them. The result of their kidnapping very much could lead to their death. And our prayer is that the kidnappers would look at them and say, hey, you know how your government operates. You know how we operate as kidnappers. We've already killed people in the past. Why do you have hope? And that God would, would use their witness to these men. That they would be transformed by the hope within these Christians that have been captured. That they would be so filled with God's Holy Spirit and so filled with also this, with His Word. That they can defend and explain the reason for hope. Church, that we would be so filled with God's Spirit and so filled with God's Word that we would be able to give our reason for hope. Jesus modeled this for us in His temptation in the wilderness. Hungry, going without food for for 40 days and wandering in, in the desert. He responded to the evil schemes and empty promises of Satan by what? Quoting Scripture. God's word says this. Jesus also instructed his disciples in this way in Matthew 10, 19 to 20. He said, you, you should expect this. You should expect suffering and persecution on my behalf. And he says, when they deliver you over, do not be anxious. How you are to speak and what you are to say for what you are to say will be given you in that hour. For it is not you who speak, but the Spirit of your Father speaking, what? Through you. God is so good that He fills you with His Spirit and He gives you the words to say. This is why Peter's just been so encouraging to me as I've, as I've studied this uh, specific book and then reflecting. Uh, if you've been with us a while, you know we went through the Gospel of Mark about a year ago. We believe that the Gospel of Mark was written by John Mark, but it is the first-hand account of the Apostle Peter. Okay, so we're kind of seeing both ends of the spectrum here. And Peter's been so encouraging to me because we've seen first what a mess Peter was. 
in his time under the direct instruction of Jesus, and we witness also his, his transformation all throughout Scripture. If you read through the book of Acts, you'll see his, an incredible transformation in his life. And then coming out of that, now he's instructing Christians on how to act in the midst of suffering. We see God's grace all over his life, from denial to boldness, from boldness now to exhorting other Christ followers. And so, bringing this back around, we, we need not fear because we have the spirit of truth within us calling to memory that which we have learned through reading God's word. And being sharpened now, hear this, under the preaching of God's word, it's the importance of why we gather together so that we sit under the word of God. I come to you with no authority of my own. I come to you proclaiming the authority of God's word. I'm just a man. And so I, I, as a man, I can't say anything more than what this says and anything less than what this says. Jesus reminds us of the role of the Spirit within the defense of our faith in John 14, 26 to 27, he, he gives us some instructions here that we, we can learn from. He says, But the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he says this, He will teach you all things, hear this part, and bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. Peace I leave with you, my peace I give to you, not as the world gives do I give to you, let not your hearts be troubled, neither let them be afraid. Jesus is saying a couple things here. The, the Spirit, God's Holy Spirit, works with the words of Christ. We believe that these are the inspired words of God. Okay, And so Jesus speaks to us through his word, and he's saying here that the Spirit is going to recall to memory that which we have entrusted to our hearts. Church, do you see the importance of God's Word now in your life? And I don't, I don't want to have a guilt fest in here this morning, but I do want to speak truth to you. Many of you, your Bibles sit there and collect dust from Monday to Saturday, and then you blow it off and you bring it in here and you open it, and then it's closed for the rest of the week. Would you invest yourself into the Word of God and the instruction of His Word on your own? And then would you entrust yourself to the preaching of God's Word consistently as we gather together as a body of Christ? This isn't some empty ritual. There is something spiritual that goes on in this room when we gather together. And so the Spirit works with what we've been taught, recalling it, bringing it to your remembrance. And so, again, I want you to get this picture. Then if we are filled with His Word and we're filled with His Spirit, our cup should be so full to the top, there's just no room for fear. Fear, get out. I don't have room. I don't have time for you because I have stuff to do. And I don't have room for you because I'm filled with God's Spirit and I'm filled with God's Word. Lastly, this is my favorite part. Number four. Why should we not fear? Because we have a triumphant Savior. We have a triumphant Savior. Jesus is not dead, He's alive. 
You see, family, there, there's a spirit of, of what I would say is alarmism that has invaded our culture and our churches. We've become so alarmed in every passing crisis, and it consumes us. And it's climate crisis. It's political integrity crisis. It's a crisis of morality. It's a health crisis. There's a crisis every day of the week on the news. But if we believe... If we truly believe the words of Scripture, we believe this, that Jesus is victorious over all these things. We have then no reason to be alarmed or fearful. We can be concerned. There's a a place for proper concern in the life of a Christian, but there's no need to be alarmed or fearful. I would say this, it's sinful to live in a perpetual state of fear because it dishonors God. We're saying, God, I don't trust you. I trust that the Lord is holding all things in his hand. Hold on to these words from Peter of our, of our triumphant Savior. It says, for Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous. I don't know if you guys heard that. I must start over. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous. That he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the, I think this should be capitalized here, in the spirit. Paul teaches us in Romans that It was the Spirit of Christ. It was the power of the Holy Spirit, I'm sorry, that raised Christ from the dead. Then it says, In which he went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison, because they formerly did not obey. This stuff's going to kind of get a little weird in here. I'm just warning you. When God's patience waited in the days of Noah while the ark was being prepared, in which a few, that is, eight persons, so that was Noah's family, were brought safely through the water... And he says, baptism, which now corresponds to this, saves you, not as a removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience. I want you to hear this. Through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who has gone into heaven, hear where he is at, church, and is at the right hand of God with angels, authorities, and powers, having been subjected to him. The picture is that they're under him. I can't get into everything in this section here. I've got to leave some stuff on the table. I'm sorry. We're going to focus here on, on the victory of Christ. We, we witness the, the majesty and victory of our Savior in this last section. Again, I, I don't want to dismiss the, the difficulty of, of preaching this last section. Actually, this week I, I sent a text out to a few of our elders and some other pastor friends of mine. I'm like, hey, what do you think about this verse here? It says, in which he went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison. What in the world does that mean? And again, I also, I don't want to get sidetracked from the main point of this last section, which is the work of Jesus on our behalf and the victory of Jesus over his enemies. It says all powers are subject to him. We must be in unity of mind and have humble minds as we seek to understand this particular difficult passage. 
And again, in reading this section, I sought out help. I came to the conclusion I don't fully understand what Peter is getting at. I have an opinion. One of our elders had a great word of encouragement. He, he said this, there's a lot of speculation on it, but none to be dogmatic about. Okay, none that you, you formulate this absolutely concrete idea and you say, hey, you, all of you guys are wrong and I'm right. There's about three or four different opinions on th- that particular verse. I, I'm of the opinion, and, and this isn't held by everybody, I'm of the opinion that this section also ties into the supremacy of Jesus over every rule and authority, power and dominion, and every name that is invoked. Not only in the present age, but in the age to come. This is what I believe that Peter's getting at here, is that Jesus proclaimed in his death and resurrection, as he proclaimed to the spirits in prison, that he proclaimed in his death and resurrection, he proclaimed this, victory over the schemes of darkness and proclaimed victory over Satan and death. All powers are subject to him, past, present, future. The question comes about, whom then shall we fear? Whom then shall we fear? Why does fear not even have one section of our concern? We do well to heed the words of Bonhoeffer. Those who are afraid of men have no fear of God, and those who fear God have no fear of men. Why can we have no fear of men? Because Christ is victorious. Paul, I think, says this in an incredible way in Colossians 2.15. I love this verse. He says, He disarmed the rulers and authorities, hear this, and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. Satan thought he won at the cross. But that last nail that was driven into the feet of Christ crushed the skull of Satan, crushed the enemy of God. Jesus has disarmed all rulers and authorities and he put them to open shame at the cross. Christ is victorious. He is a triumphant savior. When we take the instruction of God's word seriously, then we find that fear has no place in the life of a believer. I know we struggle with fear but it has no place and we should try to push every ounce of it out of us. Because why? We have a a family to encourage us in the midst of fear. We're unified around a mission of action and so when we're about the Lord's business, we don't have time for fear to creep in. Again, we don't have time for it. This is urgent. Our mission is urgent. In our preparedness, we don't have an an ounce of space within our soul to give way to fear because we're filled with the Spirit of God and we're filled with the Word of God. And lastly and most importantly, we we don't have a place for fear because we have a great Savior who is victorious over sin and death and every 
enemy of God. He put them to open shame, his word says. 